0: If you have your copies of Scripture, if you will, turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8. Uh, Matthew, chapter 8. Uh, I want to encourage you this week. Um, we will be sending out devotions beginning tomorrow morning. Uh, in fact, you'll probably get them in the evenings rather than early mornings uh, for each day uh, this upcoming week, uh, Monday through Saturday. Saturday want to encourage you, if you will, to let's think together through these texts and uh, hopefully be encouraged as we focus our attention uh, through the course of the week toward our service on Thursday at 6 o'clock at Freedom. And then uh, as we're able together gather uh, on Sunday, uh, Resurrection Sunday, and be able to celebrate again as we do each week uh, the resurrection uh, of Christ. What is authority? It's a reasonable question, isn't it? Uh, We use the word a lot, but we're even talking about it now in relation to Christ. But what is authority? Authority is the power to determine, to adjudicate, or otherwise settle issues or disputes, jurisdiction, the right to control, to command, or, or to Uh, determined. That's what authority is. Last week we began looking uh, in Matthew's gospel, kind of covering the spans of chapter 8 uh, through 10 to uncover the extent of Jesus' authority. The reason this is important is that we have heard from Matthew that Jesus is king. We have declared that today. We uh, have uh, directed our singing around crown him with many crowns and talking about the reign of Jesus uh, even as we're giving consideration uh, today to uh, celebrating the day that Jesus went into Jerusalem the beginning of his last week of life here on earth and the people were uh, they were declaring that he is king uh, and he and he is king We saw that things turned out differently for him with the crowds as we mentioned last week. But it's important that we give consideration to this because Jesus is the promised king. And we've already heard in Matthew's gospel that he is establishing uh, a new kingdom. And what's more is that he has come to save his people from their sins. So the, the citizens of this kingdom, the citizenry if we will of this new kingdom, are those who are saved from their sins. And it makes sense that his authority and the very nature of his authority is something uh, that we would want to consider. It's clear that the kingdom that we're being told about is an eternal kingdom. We've looked at this through the course of Matthew's gospel. It's one that had in one sense... It had come with Christ's coming. He said, uh, You know, the the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist was preaching, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus said, And the kingdom is here. But we also know that this kingdom is an eternal kingdom because He continues to point to that, an eternal kingdom that ultimately will be consummated upon His return. I want you to hold that, hold on to that thought uh, as we look ahead. Uh, even to Sunday. Now, not an entirely new approach uh, to getting things done, but certainly having drawn a good deal of attention uh, and has been been the use of the executive order. Uh, I wasn't even aware that such a thing existed until back a few years ago, an executive order. Uh, We've seen it exercised, especially over the course of the last few decades. It's the exercise of presidential power to put into place a rule that carries with it the force of law. Some argue that having such power makes a government overreach a, a bit too easy. We're not here to discuss that today. It's just an example of authority. Someone saying this is the way things are going to be and then that's the way things are. Now last week we introduced Three characteristics of Jesus' authority, and then we uh, included two additional points that serve as concluding statements. Uh, They were listed in your worship guides last week. They're there again uh, this week. Um, Let's look at them again for just a moment. Jesus, His authority is all-encompassing. Uh, We said last week, and we say again this week, when we say that Jesus' authority is all-encompassing, what we're saying is that everything in heaven and on earth is under the authority of Jesus. There's nothing outside of that. So uh, put that back with our definition of authority, and and there's a jurisdiction. And Jesus' jurisdiction is an all-encompassing jurisdiction. There's nothing outside of his authority. The second is that Jesus' all-encompassing authority is accompanied with all-encompassing power. Uh, even last week we talked about that there, were, there have been times where people had the authority to do something but didn't necessarily have the power to carry it, uh, to, to carry it out. Uh, some, of, some of you may be even in your work life at some point in time uh, is you've been given an authority to oversee something but you don't have the power to actually carry it out. That's not the case with Jesus. When we speak of Jesus' all-encompassing authority, we're talking about His power. We're saying that He has unlimited in power. In other words, He's all-powerful. So there's never a time when He is not able to exercise His authority. Because he has the power to do so. And then we said that Jesus' authority is exercised to accomplish his will. Jesus uses his power in exercising his authority to accomplish his will. His will. So His will is the sole subject of His authority. And then the two concluding statements that we said that we would just continue to revisit, and I I want you to hold on to these because these are continuing to resurface over and over again, is that Jesus' authority is God's authority. Because Jesus is the second person of the triune Godhead. His authority is God's authority. So just a moment ago, when we looked at the psalm and our confession, and we said that the Lord, and Mooney rightly said, the Lord Yahweh, the Lord God is king. He is the one that is to be worshiped. Uh, We are not excluding Jesus from that and we're not excluding the Holy Spirit because we are talking about the triune God and Jesus is the second person of the triune Godhead. So he is to be obeyed. He is king. He is to be worshipped. And it doesn't mean that the, the Father is less king or the Holy Spirit is less king. It means that the Lord God himself is king and ruler and in that Jesus is king and ruler. And because Jesus' authority is God's authority, He should be trusted and obeyed. We concluded there last week. We will conclude there again this week. And you may wonder, why are we continuing to press on this issue of authority? Well, that's ultimately our greatest struggle, is submitting to the authority of God. So the reason that Matthew stresses and is telling story after story, giving account after account of Jesus' authority because he wants to make it clear that this king is establishing this kingdom and he has the authority to do so and faith in him is ultimately a submission to his authority. Recognizing it and submitting to it. As we looked at our confession, Booney rightly stated, we struggle with that. Those are our issues. As we began to consider last week, remember that we said that the text through these three chapters are divided up like this. And I just mentioned this again in case you didn't get it last week, is that we have three miracles And then Matthew pauses and speaks about some would-be disciples. We have three more miracles that he talks about. And then we pause again and we talk about discipleship and disciples again. And then we have four more miracles and those laid out this way. Now we probed into the first two miracles which disclosed Jesus' concern for the unclean. And his authority to cleanse the unclean. And then we saw that Jesus' word is authoritative. The servant of the centurion was healed. And as far as we're told, Jesus never saw him, never touched him, never came in contact with him, as far as we know. But what was most important was that the faith of the centurion brought to light one of the most perplexing teachings for the religious but non-Jesus accepting Jew. This is what Jesus said. After he had commended the man's faith he said I tell you many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But let's press on. Look in verse 14 of chapter 8. And when Jesus entered Peter's house he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. Talking about Peter's mother-in-law. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. And that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. And this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Uh, if you didn't catch it, we sang some of that same verbiage uh, this morning. Go back and look uh, this afternoon and hear it again. Uh, we've already seen that Matthew is making a point, and he's made it well. The point is is that Jesus is concerned with the outcast and the marginalized but let's be careful with that because we're living in a time where there is a heightened sense of sensitivity regarding social justice. That's not what Jesus is talking about and what he's dealing with. He'll continue to make, Matthew will continue to make this point that Jesus is drawing a parallel between the idea of being outcast and sin and sin and being outcast. In other words, sin is the reason for the outcast. Sin is the reason for the separation from God. And as we'll continue to see, and we've already heard in Matthew's gospel, sin is universal. That means that everyone is a sinner. Everyone is sinful. Look back in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 11. I caught this as we were reading through the sermon, and I really never paid that much attention to it in light of this, but uh, when Jesus is talking about the good things that God gives and the way the Father deals with uh, with things, he says, "And if you then who are evil, that, that isn't uh, if you're evil. That is, if then you, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children." How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? In other words, every person is put on the spotlight in comparison to the Father. You who are sinners, the Father who is without sin. You who are unrighteous, the Father who is righteous. You who are not good morally, over against God who is perfect and righteous. So here we see that Jesus touches Peter's mother-in-law and she is I want you to pay attention that Jesus touched the leper. We already talked about that and we mentioned it last week. And Jesus wasn't defiled. And here he touches the one who has fever and yet he's not defiled. Now what's interesting about the fever is that fevers normally are pointing to what? Something else. They're generally a symptom of something else that is going on. But there are in cases, there are some fevers that are in themselves just the fever itself is fatal. What we see here is the authority of Jesus over all of these things. And not only that, notice what happens. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. In other words, Jesus' touch brought immediate restoration, immediate healing. In other words, she was able to serve. She was immediately ready to serve. And then we have this almost inclusive statement regarding those that he healed later. Look at it. It says, it says there in verse uh, 16, In that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out spirits with the word, And he healed all who were sick. And then look at verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now let's look at Isaiah chapter 53 because that's where it comes from. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 53. Let's hear what it has to say. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. What was Matthew pointing to? On the surface it seems like he has reworded things and it seems like he is disregarding the atoning work of Christ, the the, the vicarious atoning work of Christ. But, But he's not. He's not. Matthew's not doing that and we know this because he has already said that the purpose of Jesus' coming is that he might save his people from their sins. So what's he doing? Well he's drawing a connection between all sickness and sin. Every sickness has as its Beginning, every ache, every pain, every sore muscle, every disease, every fever, every cough, every sniffle. Everything points back to the sin of Adam and the subsequent curse of creation. So what is Matthew saying? Well, he's saying that there is healing in the atonement. There is healing in the atonement. And he is also saying that there is the promise of the resurrection in the atonement. And we only have to go back and read Isaiah chapter 53 to hear about that resurrection. Matthew isn't conveying in any way that healing is upon demand and that everyone who trusts in Christ is automatically then free from all disease and are And as God is in some way obligated to heal everyone now in the present. That's not what he's saying. So when he says here that Jesus healed all those who were sick, he healed all those who were sick that night who came to that place. But he is pointing to a complete healing of all of those who trust in him because he is looking ahead to the kingdom and the consummation of the kingdom where there will be no more sickness and there will be no more pain and there will be no more suffering. That's what Matthew is pointing to. He is pointing to those things. And he is pointing to the fact that everything that is done, as we have already said, is done according to the will of Jesus. To the Logical question is, should we expect physical healing? Yeah, we can expect physical healing. Is there anything wrong with asking for healing? No, there's nothing wrong with asking for healing. Can Jesus heal? The answer to that is, is yes. And in due time, we have prayed for people here. But in due time, as we go along life together, we are going to pray for each other's healing. We're going to pray for each other's healing in the midst of cancer. And we're going to pray for each other's healing when there are very, very serious things. And we're going to pray for each other's healing when we are approaching surgery. Miranda, looking at surgery here, uh, week after next, we're going to be praying toward her healing. Should we expect that? Can we expect that? Jesus can heal you, Miranda. He can. He can. He absolutely can. He has the authority to do so. But like the paralytic, we fall at his feet according to his will. The paralytic didn't know his will. He said, you can, will you? Be reminded of that. What do we know Well, we know that our suffering and pain at any moment is his will. The paralytic understood that. That his situation was Jesus' will. And if Jesus willed for it to be different, it would be different. We rest in that and we declare it for the moment knowing that it is good and it's best for his purposes. That's unlike the prosperity preachers of the day. We should also expect the effects of this, the curse of the world, which we are told that as believers, according to the prosperity preachers, that we shouldn't expect these things, that we are above that. But that's not so. Believers are not exempt from the effects of this curse as it relates to sickness, disease, hardship, suffering, persecution. No matter what the prosperity preachers say, you do not have the authority to speak away your sickness. Just read them. Here's what we have. for. Here's what God's Word tells us Philippians 1 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Colossians 1 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, Paul writes. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body. That is the church. Second Corinthians four, verses eight through 10. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Philippians 3.10, which is a part of my life's verse, if you can understand what I'm saying. That I may know Him, in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death. In Romans 8:22 for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, why because of the curse of sin. But we also have these promises. In Romans chapter 5 verses 3 through 5, not only that but we rejoice in our sufferings, Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 18 for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us pointing ahead to that day when we will be with them in this kingdom that is already established and will be consummated. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17 for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. What are we saying? Well we're saying that sickness is inevitable for some of us. Disease, hardship, suffering. But as citizens of His kingdom the atonement has taken care of healing for us in the end. Let's look at verse 18. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. We've said that Matthew is deliberate in his selections and in the order in which he places things and because he has a point to make he's seeking to communicate that point. He pauses in the testimony of the miracles to cause us to consider the cost of discipleship and why not? A paralytic is healed. The centurion's servant is healed. He's pointing to faith Peter's mother-in-law is healed. He has another night where he talks about the healing uh, and the casting out of demons. And so these people are following along. And why wouldn't they follow? Everything seems to be going well and happening. uh, All the things that are happening to those who are following Jesus seemingly look, look really good. It's the kinds of things that we want. We come to Jesus for what? For healing. We come to Him for what? For prosperity. Isn't that what we are told? That is why we come to Jesus. So that our lives are made right and all of our hardship goes away. That's part of the message, not of our message today, but part of the message that we hear. And He pauses here and stops and says, let's look at the cost of discipleship. What do we have? Well, let's look at the first one. The scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. Boom! Immediately. Ready to follow. Quick to follow. And then we have one, what happens to him? And another of the disciples in verse 21 said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. So we have those who are quick to follow and those who are kind of uh, holding back. They're, they're, they're saying, I'm going to follow you, but, but I'm going to follow you a little bit later. So quick to follow and slow to follow. But watch what's happening here. And we saw this in John's gospel. We see it here. Jesus isn't trying to draw the crowds. It's not that followers aren't important to Jesus. What Jesus is looking for are those who will be true And faithful to follow. It's easy to sign up. It's hard to stay the course. It's easy to profess. It's hard to remain faithful. The fact is there are many who for the sake of a miracle will say I'll follow. But we've already heard this in Jesus' sermon. Turn to Matthew chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Life of faith is hard. Following Jesus is hard. It is a narrow way. It is hard. And there are few who follow. With that being the case, just listen to this for just a minute. And it's not to be critical, but it is to be honest. When church, when the church at large makes the way into the church easier than Jesus makes it. With no commitment. They have done a disservice to every man and woman that is touched by that because they have told them the exact opposite of what Scripture has to say. We don't make it any harder than Jesus makes it. We don't make it any more narrow than Jesus makes it. But my goodness, We can't make it broad when Jesus says that it is narrow. Why? Well, what happens? We have those who are quick to commit and then those who are slow to follow and consequently they don't. What does that say about us? Just look at ourselves. Have we been individuals that have been quick to commit and yet we have not yet followed? Or are not yet following? Or are struggling in our following? Let's look at verses 23 through 27. And when he, speaking of Jesus, got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he, meaning Jesus, was asleep. And they went and they woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, Listen, What sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? I'm not sure how many of you have ever been in a life-threatening situation. I'm not sure how many of you have ever been in a life-threatening situation that had anything to do with water. I can recall several life-threatening situations in my own life, but never brought on by a storm in the actual ocean. But for any of you who have looked out over the ocean during a severe storm, maybe your thoughts have been, man, I sure am glad I'm on the hill. I'm sure i am glad I'm on the land. Uh, if you didn't think that way, had you been there in the ocean, in whatever it was that you were looking at, you would have certainly said, man, I wish I wasn't out here. I-, I wished I was back on the hill right now. And nothing may be more frightening than being at sea in a storm. How many of you have ever watched the movie The Perfect Storm? Some of you have. Um, We watched it back, I think, in 1996 when it first came out to the theaters. Janice won't watch it again. She refuses to. Um, She said it was too real, too frightening. Uh, But it was based on a true story on some of the accounts of those who were at sea when several storms came together in 1991 there in the Atlantic uh, and uh, the crew of the Andrea Gale, a fishing vessel out of Gloucester, Massachusetts was lost at sea in that storm and that was kind of the story of it. And it really is a kind of a terrifying kind of scene. Well, the disciples experienced a similar event And it was certain that the conditions were such at least as far as they understood we are going to be lost at sea and we're going to drown. Notice what they said. They said to him, Save us Lord, we are perishing. What's interesting about the account is that the disciples were fearful and frantic but what was Jesus doing? Oh, he was relaxed and resting. He was asleep. And they awoke him and said, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And notice his response. He said, Why are you afraid, O you, of little faith? What's the point of this story? I believe the point's found in the last statement. What does he say? What sort of man? They're saying together, What sort of man is this? What kind of a man is this? That's the point. What kind of a man is this? What sort of man is this? Well, let's think through it for just a moment. What's the issue? Is the issue the fear of drowning? It was for them, and that's a real issue. Uh, They were afraid that they were going to be lost at sea. I can tell you as one who almost drowned, I can attest to the fact that it brings a high degree of anxiety in the moment. Is that unwarranted fear? I I don't think so. So I I don't think it was just the fear of drowning. Because from the personal experience, I was a believer. I wasn't worried about eternity. I just didn't want to drown. At the moment, I didn't care if I died. I just didn't want to die that way. It seemed horrible and terrifying. And I was terrified. He addresses their fear as something that is in opposition to their faith, because notice he connects the two together. Can you be afraid of something without being of little faith? I think so. I think that there are times where good, healthy fear is warranted, that doesn't have anything to do with the faith. But he says, Why are you afraid, O oh, you of little faith? So the issue is, has something to do with their faith. Something to do with either how much they believe or what they believe. Well, let's notice what they do get right. Okay, for just a minute. Notice that they're not skeptical of his ability to save them. What do they ask? Save us. Lord, save us. We are perishing. So the issue is not whether he has the power to save them or not. I think the issue goes back to what he has already told them about himself. I deliberately skipped over it, but go back to verse 20. When he's speaking to the other would-be disciples, and Jesus said to this particular disciple, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but what? But what? The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And notice what the disciples' question is at the end. What sort of man is this? And Jesus had said what sort of man this is. The Son of Man. Turn to Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14 for just a moment. This term son of man is used several times. It's used when God speaks to Ezekiel. It's used in the psalm generally generally pointing to a man that's being called the son of man. But in Daniel chapter 7 in a very specific prophetic word this term son of man points to the one who is to come and his authority. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, Daniel says. And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. In other words, it's pointing to the Messiah. It's pointing to exactly who Jesus said he was when he was speaking to this would-be disciple. He said, because the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. The point is not, does Jesus, this man that they had been with, does he have the power to do this? It's not, can he save us? Certainly they felt like that he could because they woke him up and said, save us, save us. The point is, is they really failed to see him as the Messiah, the one who was to take away the sins of his people. A work that could only be done through his atoning work. And if he didn't make it through this storm, then the atonement would not take place. In other words, if he were lost at sea... Then his purpose would not have been and could not have been fulfilled. Now it becomes clear why he says, O you of little faith. He wasn't talking about the quantity of their faith, he was talking about their understanding of who he was. What does that have to say to us today? Well, think about it for just a moment. He has stated that he is a king. That has been confirmed by God himself. He is the son of God. He has established a kingdom. That kingdom is eternal just as Daniel's prophetic word said that it was. Those promises that are related to that are only accomplished by virtue of who He is. When we think about that and think about His supreme authority, do we hold on to and cling to the fact that eternity awaits us? That He has promised our secure and complete Delivery into that kingdom if we trust Him. That He will hold us. That nothing separates us from God. That no one can take us from Him. That nothing can happen to Him. Not even our death suspends or stops or ends any of that. Do we live with those things in mind to where even the fear of death Maybe not drowning, but just death in and of itself goes away. That the fears and struggles that are associated with the challenges of this life, with suffering here, as we read early, are light and momentary and do not even measure up against the glory that we will know and enjoy with Him. Do we live in that manner? Or does everything about this life seem to control us? Our own desires drive to self preservation. I believe that's what he's talking about here with his disciples. I know that's what he is saying to us as we give consideration to this text. The Son of Man has accomplished these things. Look in verse 28. So he has, we recognize, the authority to be able to speak to the winds and to calm the sea. That's the kind of man he is. The son of man who has the authority over everything. And then in verse 28, and when he came to the other side, to the country of uh, the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs. So fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now, a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out, and they went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled. Going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all of the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw Him, they begged Him to leave their region. I hope you made this connection. Isn't it interesting that while the disciples in the boat are uncertain as to who Jesus is. The demons aren't. What sort of man is this? Demon says, you're the son of God. (laughs) We don't know who he is. They know clearly who he is. That's part of Matthew's purpose. The demons know that he is the son of God. And what do we know about him? And they still hate him. He's the son of God and they still hate him. Not only are they certain that he's the son of God, but what else do we see in that text? They know that judgment is coming and they'll be destroyed. And you know what they think? When they encounter him, they think now is the time. Notice what they say to him. Have you come here to torment us before the time?" In other words, we know judgment's coming. We know we're damned. We know that, that the end, that there is no hope for us, is today the day. That's their point. And you say, well, that ought to be enough to cause them to want to turn to Jesus. It's not. They still hate Him. They still hate Him. They're certain that He's the Son of God. They are certain that he's going to judge them and that they'll be destroyed. And yet they hate him. You know, this story brings all kinds of questions to us. I I know we've probably, any of us who have ever read it and sat down with a group of people and talked about it, all kinds of questions have come up. Here's some of the questions. Why did the demons ask to enter into the pigs? You know the answer? Scripture doesn't give it. Why did Jesus allow them to enter into the pigs? In fact, he even said, you know, go. Enter into the pigs and destroy the people's livelihood. You know why? No. Scripture doesn't tell us. Doesn't tell us. Was it important? It was important to the people who lost their livelihood but it wasn't important in the scope of all that was going on, and it's not that jesus does not care it had nothing to do with that. Why did they want Jesus to leave the area? Notice what the scripture says here. Look the herdsmen fled in verse thirty three The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything so the story and, and here's in his notice what it said, especially. What had happened to the demon-possessed men? Which was what? They had been made whole, They had been restored. They were not out of their mind any longer. They were completely cleansed and healed and free of this demonic presence and being in them. They were now calm. They were now settled, whereas before you couldn't get anywhere near them. All of this had happened, and that was especially what they said And they begged him to leave their region. Here's what we know. There's a lot we don't know. But here's what we do know. Is the demons knew who he was. They had no authority to do anything except what he granted them to do. And he, according to his will, granted their request. Jesus' authority and power were displayed over all the demonic forces and His will was accomplished. Two men were made whole and restored. We know that. We know that the demons fled His presence. And what else do we know? we know that a group of non-Jewish people rejected him. They asked him to leave. We would think that they would ask him to stay. We would think that after seeing two people healed and restored, that they would say, please stay. Do your work. Work in our midst. We'll take care of you. Just stay here. But they say, go. Why? Why? We heard it earlier. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. The demons were in opposition to him. We've already read earlier that the Pharisees were in opposition to him. And now we hear what else? The Gentiles are in opposition to him. Pretty somber end there, isn't it? All of these people are in opposition to him. But there are a few that are finding him and are following him. There are a few that have faith to believe in him and he is pointing them to believe that he is the Son of Man, the Messiah, the one who has come to save His people from their sins. Not to gain prosperity. It might even mean to lose all of your livelihood. It might even mean to lose your herd of pigs. Or whatever it is that you have. The question before us today is do we recognize and believe in the authority of Jesus? An authority that does demand him to be trusted, to be worshipped, to be loved, and to be obeyed. Jesus does reign and He rules. And the backdrop to all of this as we will continue to see as we continue to press into these texts, the backdrop of all of this is that He has established a kingdom and is establishing one even now. And the citizens of that kingdom are those who trust in Him and follow Him. Not perfect. Not perfect. Being made complete, being sanctified, as we'll sing in just a moment. In other words, being perfected, being sanctified, being conformed to the image of the Son. But not there yet. Not people with Great faith as if there is an an abundance of faith. But people who are growing in their faith as they little by little submit to His authority along the way each day as things are disclosed in our lives and He reaches again and again and again and touches and cleanses And cleans, let's pray together. Father, help us as we come to recognize. the authority of Your Son and beyond just knowing who He is as we realize today again that the demons knew exactly who He was and the authority that He had over them but that we would worship Him and love Him and obey Him. We intercede now on behalf of those who live In this community. Men and women who even at this point. Have rejected you. Some who have refused to. Acknowledge your authority. And some who have acknowledged your authority. But hate you and stand in opposition to you. Father as we move into this week we ask God that you would work in our hearts and lives and that there would be an outpouring of your spirit to bring conviction not only in our lives but an outpouring of your spirit to bring conviction to the hearts of those who live in close proximity even to this place. Father, would You cause a great disturbance in their heart, maybe even a great disturbance in our community if that's what You will to do, that would bring people front and center to acknowledge You, bringing them to a place to worship You and to obey You and to love You. Father, we ask this today in Jesus' name. Amen.